Section 68, The XP Experience. Another release of Office that relies on Windows to make it exciting. Bill G. expressing his view of Office while deciding on product naming. In early 2000, branding and naming the next release of Windows was all gummed up, and that slowed down Office, which needed a name in order to release on time in March. Whistler, the code name for Windows, was scheduled to ship about six months after Office 10. An August ship date for Windows was achievable, and no one wanted to mess that up. The name, perhaps to the surprise of many readers today, was the long pole in the release, as it touched code in many places and could impact the localization, manufacturing, printing, packaging schedules, and more. We needed a name. How hard could that be? Windows was trying to settle on some variant of experience, because the main thrust of the release was to finally bring the Windows 95 experience of peripherals and consumer software to the enterprise-focused NT codebase of Windows 2000. In addition, we collectively concluded the year names were not working, hence Windows Me, because the difficulty of keeping ship schedules and customer confusion over what products work with each other. Both issues were entirely predictable and even discussed at the time. The branding team was thinking of something like Windows EXP or Windows XPR, and finally, Windows XP. My concern in an endless email chain was not this product, but the next one. Would the next name have a Roman numeral, go back to adding version numbers, a superscript, or add a descriptor addition branding? At what point, someone mocked up Windows XP squared, that's XP with a superscript number two, which made me wonder if I was being made fun of, especially in the Spanish release. The corporate team settled on and cleared the name Windows XP, and what immediately followed was the question as to whether Office 10 should be named Office XP. The corporate branding team and sales teams were in favor. The Windows team, however, did not intend for other products to add to the XP suffix. This seemed to be another .NET in the making, which was still nowhere close to being resolved. The branding powers demanded evidence in the product that supported co-branding. We held many meetings during development about aligning the releases of Whistler and Office 10, but the products were on wildly different schedules. From our perspective, Whistler was about finishing Windows 2000 without much new for Office. Besides, Office was going to run perfectly well on the new corporate desktop of Windows 2000 anyway. Windows 2000 had been years late, so it was not unreasonable early in the process to doubt the next Windows schedule. Whistler was making a ton of progress, and we were self-hosted, so any worse thoughts were not going to happen. This was the first for Windows. Still, there was no significant release synergy. Office ran on Windows XP, and realistically, not even as well as it ran on Windows 2000 PCs with the same amount of memory. At one of these meetings, the topic of naming them became heated, if not awkward. Bill wanted to know what was interesting in Office 10 and what was unique when it ran on Whistler. Baked into this assault was the belief that Office was not exciting on its own, and more importantly, that Office failed at exploiting the latest Windows release. This was the view that came from the perspective that innovation for Microsoft emerged first from Windows. My answers were not satisfying as I restated the series of meetings, lack of APIs, and our system requirements. I chose to highlight the work we did to align with Windows Server for SharePoint, totally irrelevant in the conversation in this context, Bill expressed his frustration at another release of Office that relies on Windows to make it exciting, which honestly didn't make much sense and bordered on insulting. By and large, we were not looking to the Windows desktop to innovate for Office. In reality, many innovations in user interface flowed from Office to Windows for years already. That was interesting to Bill at this moment. 
Windows really wanted the XP name to be unique to Windows. Office really didn't want to look like it required or much was matched to Windows XP. We learned that lesson when Office 97 arrived, and many consumers at retail were wondering where the matching Windows 97 was, or even if Office 97 ran on Windows 95. After more time back and forth, Office marketing and corporate branding agreed to, no surprise, a compromise of a name. Office XP with a version 2002 prominently displayed on the box. The apps were called Word 2002, Excel 2002, etc., not Word XP or Excel XP, because brand didn't want to overuse the XP moniker. Windows did not have such a version on the box or on the software. Also, the boxes didn't look at all that similar. This meant customers calling product support or using the website would need to search for 2002 and not XP. Unless they use Google, which got it right. I, I can't make this stuff up, but just wait until the next release of Office. The online version includes the story written about the names, which is rather skeptical. Microsoft hopes product names say web from February 5th, 2001. We had a name, we were on track for March 2nd, and we had a date for launch and boxes for Germany. We signed off on 3201, just like we planned. It was magical to do that. We beat the Excel record for more than a dozen years ago and hit our planned ship date. I know this sounds ridiculous. Product development schedules are supposed to work, but it simply did not happen with software projects. We were so happy. The online version includes a collection of photos from the 3201 release to manufacturing party at the fountain. For launch, marketing planned one main U.S. event, which we expected to be covered globally. Bill G. headlined the event at New York City's Manhattan Center Ballroom, aimed at getting broad media coverage, while around the country there would be hundreds of local events targeting enterprise IT professionals. There was no effort to get people lined up at stores or any sort of midnight madness, though local offices around the world did some of that, and we did have Bill G. greet early buyers in New York. A fixed launch date is a great forcing function, there's that phrase again, to get everybody ready for press tours, reviewer workshops, and enterprise product information. For enterprise customers, the main features of the release going back to the original product plan were collaboration and integration with the just-shipped Exchange 2000. SharePoint Portal Server 2002, there's that naming again, released a few weeks after Office XP, which included SharePoint Team Services, also served as a collaboration platform. Our collaboration story was as complex as predicted in our vision statement, a result of targeting the same scenarios for two different back-end infrastructure products. For system administrators, we enabled new scenarios, such as installing Office XP from a website and ever more controls and customizations for deployment. There was a lot, and it was all new for enterprise customers. Industry analysts were having a great time digging into the idea of Office shipping servers. Through some incredible outreach by marketing and the field, more than 500,000 enterprise customers used the product in pre-release. The internet had made it easy to distribute the product, and because of Watson, we did not only knew anonymously that people were using the product, but we were fixing bugs based on their usage, and we knew the release was high quality. We really knew that, not just hoped. Shipping software had radically changed using Watson. The availability of data forever changed what we were worried about when shipping. The online version includes the complete set of Office XP consumer data sheets used at retail outlets, trade shows, and by salespeople. The traditional tech press and mainstream media continued to struggle with explaining or making broadly interesting heavy enterprise features like collaboration. I was still smarting from the reviews of Office 2000 and was determined for us to get credit for the personal productivity features. 
We built a great set of capabilities that worked with or without servers and was as common at the time with or without a broadband internet connection, though by that point, most every customer was connected. Office XP introduced several novel features we believed gained notice, including the first features that worked seamlessly using an internet connection from within the apps. Building such features was a fascinating lesson in team transformation. With many stories from the early days of the internet about traditional print-based offerings unable to transition to the web, we set out to do something new and innovative with the thousands of pages of training materials and vast library of content we shipped on CD-ROM. Jeff Oland, email Jeff O, began his career in user education, creating the written materials that accompany a product. He became a leader in building reference and training materials for Office and then led worldwide localization teams based in Dublin, Ireland. With Jeff O's leadership, content went from a cost center to an asset for the business. The Dublin team went from taking almost a year to localize Office in a dozen languages to localizing Office into 100 languages in just under a month. The next step in content to help customers was to use the internet to provide endlessly growing features, such as adding images or clip art to a document, templates, how-to, and more. As an example, before Google pioneered image search, it was luck that enabled an author to find suitable clip art. Especially in large corporations, most of the clip art we shipped with the product was eliminated to save disk space. In Office XP, we introduced an insert clip art feature that used an ever-expanding and easily searchable set of internet images much larger than anything on a CD. The idea of tens of thousands of images available for free was quite cool for business users of PowerPoint, tired of angry person and idea light bulb overhead person in presentations. In hindsight, a product having a website seems obviously trivial. But at the time, we were deeply concerned about adding a website to a product used and liked by hundreds of millions of people. The web was still flaky and slow. And while novel, sites routinely did not work. We did so much work in quality. The thought of having a toolbar button or menu commands leading to strange errors from unavailable sites was horrifying. Websites needed to be new and fresh all the time and always work. The help system was no longer limited to what was written and shipped with the product, but could also search a large and growing library of how-to articles on the web, including an under-the-radar hit called Crabby Office Lady, who offered up tips with an irreverent tone, advice with an attitude, authored by a professional writer on the team, Anik Stahl, email Anik S. Anik's column was wildly popular with hundreds of millions of views. She was interviewed by a local newspaper tech column, often writing similar content, and even had television's appearance as herself, not the character. The character and personality Anik created even drew some inquiries from the VP of Human Resources over concerns of stereotyping. Anik's goal was to take aim at the perception of the office product, not the office customer, and she had full control over the project she initiated. We saw this approach used to great effect with a series of books, such as Word Annoyances, that had become one of the most popular books on using Office products. So popular was the Krabby column on the site that Anik went on to write a book and was part of several behind-the-scenes stories. After the release, we created a new team under Jeff's leadership. Andrew Quatnitz, email Andrew K, moved from OPU to lead program management and help focus on content working for Jeff O, who reported to me. Season managers Mike Kelly, email Mike Kell, and Randall Bozeman, Randall B., had to create new processes and tools to go from zero to 100 million website visitors seemingly overnight. 
The content team also develops schedules for creating, localizing, and releasing content at regular intervals, something we had only previously done on multi-year release boundaries. Between online content, crabby office lady, and the introduction of a new side pane user interface to make the product easier, plus the ongoing ridicule aimed at the assistant, we also made some big changes to Clippy. The plan for the product cycle was to provide even more options and administrator controls to reduce Clippy's visibility, including making sure by default that Clippy no longer appeared, though it could be summoned if desired. Importantly, the message for Office XP was that it was so easy to use that Clippy is no longer necessary or useful. There's a link to an online article about that. We might have, that might have been some spin, though. The online version includes an example web page from Office 2002 of Krabby Office Lady. Lisa Gurry, email Lisa GU in marketing, thought up a clever idea to make the most of this change and to embrace the opportunity to be self-deprecating in the process. She planned a formal retirement for Clippy. Instead of tacking the feature change onto the press tour in April, she planned a web-based celebration. Gilbert Gottfried, comedian and voice of dozens of animated characters, was enlisted in a set of internet flash videos, these were all the rage then, of Clippy trying to insert himself into the daily lives of people. On retirement day, Lisa issued a press release and dressed another member of the team in a giant Clippy suit as we strolled Union Square in San Francisco, complete with a cable car ride. While this was the least corporate approach to PR, it set a high watermark for intentionally cool viral marketing. To this day, the retirement still gets a laugh. With the news of Clippy's retirement, I received all sorts of retirement gifts from strangers and out in the world and customers, including a book from Amazon.com, the new online bookstore. Laughs, however, were not part of the marquee feature known as smart tags. Smart tags were a set of buttons shared across Office applications appearing when and where the user needed them, such as when a user made an error in Excel formula, when Word automatically formatted a user's action, or when users pasted some data, providing options to adjust the chosen action or to fix an error. Smart tags appeared when pasting text into Word, giving a choice of whether to match formatting or not, a common need with the rise of taking text from web pages. Smart tags made it easy to undo and never do again when Office autocorrected something incorrectly, like convert a row of dashes into a typeset line. While there were many different features across the product, smart tags provided a single and consistent unified interface. From a marketing perspective, smart tags felt like toolbars in their ability to be a visual symbol of innovation in the new product. The screenshot was used all over the place. It was Office at its best, we thought. The online version includes a section of the print based data sheet showing the smart tag as buttons with a brain. In press tours and reviews, smart tags proved a novel interface approach and were demonstrably innovative. Surprisingly, it took us several years to achieve this. The idea was in the works going back to the original office interoperability work in 1994, just as I was joining the team. But before we could execute new ideas, we needed to clean up the old implementation of menus and toolbars, which we did. Smart tags were also extensible. A corporation could recognize an order number or a shipping code and make it easy to link directly to those websites or systems. Browsers, especially Internet Explorer, and tools like free email programs or websites were not yet universally inserting automatic hyperlinks by recognizing the text of HTTP or phone numbers, dates, or other common strings. The most well-known, though, was using 1Z as a prefix for United Parcel Service tracking codes. Tracking was an exciting new thing for consumers, which with a smart tag enabled that text to act like a link to UPS. 
if Internet Explorer or Outlook used SmartTag's extensibility. Phone numbers, addresses, dates, and more were all candidates for SmartTag actions. We computed the time saved by the use of SmartTags to be an insane number of millions of hours, pure marketing. The online version includes Bill G. even used these insanely large numbers in marketing from a trade press article. We thought this such a clever idea and an opportunity to show off synergy with Internet Explorer that we created a smart tag add-in for IE that recognized many common potential links. It seemed useful and synergistic and was included in the Internet Explorer 6 beta test. The IE team thought this was clever too. This was before browsers could be customized with add-ins and web pages were mostly static HTML, except for the occasional blinking or marquee text. It wasn't long before Jim Alchin, the leader of Windows, called to tell me that people were freaking out. By this he meant the press tour for IE was not going well. Concerns about smart tags were expressed within the context of IE. While there was some hyperbole, the concerns boiled down to feedback expressed stridently by Walt Mossberg, who wrote in the Wall Street Journal, In effect, Microsoft will be able, through the browser, to re-edit anybody's site without the owner's knowledge or permission in a way that tempts users to leave and go to a Microsoft-chosen site, whether or not that site offers better information. The terminology isn't aging well, but the idea was simply that links could appear on HTML pages that were not authored by the site owner. This, in effect, could be viewed as editing the site, where editing means adding new links to a page authored by the third party. The notion of re-edit went beyond what we considered or even thought of this feature. There's some irony in that today's browsers and mail clients and many products do this for a whole host of special strings, and even Apple computers provide reference to look up words and phrases and translations to Apple sources. At the time, it was routinely pointed out that the climate of 2001 was filled with concerns that Microsoft might leverage one part of Microsoft to benefit another poorly performing or just poor part of Microsoft. Smart tags and IE surfaced those concerns, perhaps exactly the right feature at exactly the wrong time from exactly the wrong company. Conspiracy theories felt real to many perfectly rational people in the industry. To make that point, Mossberg concluded, Microsoft's Internet Explorer smart tags are something new and dangerous. They mean that the company that controls the web browser is using that power to alter others' websites to its own advantage. Microsoft has a perfect right to sell services, but by using its dominant software to do so, it will be tilting the playing field and threatening editorial integrity. We did not think through the potential abuse of this feature, though even in the worst case, it was not precisely what was suggested by some. Sites were not being rewritten and links were not getting replaced. Neither was it benign nor free from potential exploitation. We did not consider how someone with bad intentions might develop a smart tag add-in that could at best be annoying and at worst recognize text and offer a link to a nefarious website. As a result, IE removed the feature, which spared us the challenges. It appeared as capitulation, and the press was not shy about expressing that. As a broader point, the company, particularly under the new leadership in our corporate legal group, preferred and encouraged capitulation, especially for anything that might catch the attention of legal's constituents, the regulators. The online version includes a progression of columns from Walt Mossberg and the Wall Street Journal on smart tags from May and June of 2001. Office XP and the press materials still had this marquee feature, using the name SmartTag everywhere for consistency. Was the name tarnished, though? 
There wasn't anything we could do other than downplay the name and issue Q&A and FAQ documents to the marketing teams around the world. This was an unfortunate side effect of not having thought through the implications in the browser. The smart tag incident took place at what was perceived to be the height of Microsoft's power and potentially negative influence on the industry. The fact that we relatively quickly backed down has been viewed as a milestone moment. The incident was even portrayed in a widely read profile of Walt Mossberg in Wired, May 2004, titled Kingmaker. It was an example of dozens of companies that have redesigned product in response to Walt's unsparing criticism. Walt was right. I viewed this incident as the system working, the reviewers acting as a check on poor product choices. Finally, we always reminded people we made the product more stable each release. With Office XP, however, this was provable. We equipped the press and field with statistics and descriptions of the Watson curves and buckets so they could understand our new approach to improving product quality. Watson was an industry-leading and pioneering feature. Every time I represented this work, I am sure I beamed with pride, even though showing it off meant I was using a tool we wrote for demos that forced the product to crash again. The reviews of Office XP generally reflected positives for the product for both consumers and businesses. The industry was going through a post.com consolidation, and while tech was still enormously popular, the slow but certain decline of print journalism and dot-com bubbles affected reviews. First, the budgets and time, people, and hardware for the kind of testing we used to see at Byte and PC Magazine were reduced or just gone. This led to a decline in reviews based on usage of new parts of Office, especially the hard-to-test parts like SharePoint. Second, the web itself favored shorter and faster takes on what was new. People wanted reviews at the time of release. While we gave ample lead time and supported embargoes, other pressing demands made it difficult to spend time in research mode prior to a product release. With the PC deep in middle age, in-depth reviews of technology products were replaced by more instant analysis of meta topics, such as the impact of the product to the company or take on whether the product should be deployed or not. Hint, they always said stick with the current version unless it was old. In that context, Office XP provided a glimpse of what was in store for the business. Every review evaluated the product in the context of the value of upgrades. The assumption for Office was that everyone with a PC owned Office, and while it was far from true, it might have been true for among those in the tech press with their up-to-date PCs at work, but not all PCs by any measure. Enterprise customers already owned Office XP and were by all accounts only upgrading with a PC refresh cycle. Reviews almost always included benign comments about the product from IT managers, along with a quote about not being clear if there was enough business value to upgrade at the time, but certainly the future looked good. The decline of awards like Editor's Choice and in-depth 10-page reviews with benchmarks was honestly sad. It was as though the world cared less about what we did. The internet was the new focus, and for consumers and businesses, it was no longer the PC and new desktop software. As if to emphasize the point Bill G. made, the May 2001 cover of PC Magazine, which is featured in the online version, features the not-yet-complete Windows XP, and only inside is there a review of Office 2002 or Office XP. The enterprise field fully engaged on an XP desktop motion, meaning Windows XP plus Office XP. Even with Windows months from finishing, as an aside, Windows XP was the first Windows release to have a plan and a schedule that remained steady, and the product finished on plan late in the summer. Office XP and Windows XP were better together for the enterprise, 
That reduced sales surface area for the field from two products to one, so to speak, which was greatly preferred. In that sense, the timing of the two products together reinforced a core belief of Bill's that new applications provided excitement for new S, which created new demand for applications of Virtuous Cycle. Our glitzy launch event in New York at the end of May 2001 featured Bill G. leading an enterprise-focused event, but with enough consumer demonstrations to capture headlines. The focus on productivity was illustrated by a broad, though relatively unsupported statement that by, quote, making office just 10% better, we can save hundreds of millions of man hours. We were joined some, by some special guests that day. Chief among them was the founder and CEO of a relatively new Seattle-based company called Amazon.com. Jeff Bezos joined Bill on stage to demonstrate searching for Office XP on Amazon and buying it with Amazon's new one-click ordering feature. A box even arrived on stage for Jeff and Bill to open. The launch also featured Clippy, and the online version includes a photo from the launch event. But my mind was already deep in navigating what should come next for the product and the team. 